1971, President Richard Nixon declared drug abuse the nation's number one public health problem. At the time, the military was concerned about soldiers in Vietnam who had easy access to heroin that was cheap and potent. To get a better handle on the problem and see how best to support veterans, the Department of Defense, the National Institutes of Health, and the Veterans Administration funded a research project. The unexpected results shed light on the nature of addiction and the position of opioids in an array of other widely misused legal and illegal drugs. It's too bad this research has been largely forgotten, because its lessons can be useful today. That was journalist and author Lauren Aguirre reading from her first opinion essay, Lessons Learned and Lost from a Vietnam-Era Study of Addiction. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. The demands of innovation are evolving faster with each new discovery. At Cytiva, we evolve with you using flexible, modular solutions to shorten the time to the next milestone and to market. Learn more at Cytiva.com slash cell therapy. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash cell therapy. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to have a chance to talk with you, Lauren. Hi, Pat. It's great to be here. Thank you. Your first opinion essay emerged from a just-published book you wrote called The Memory Thief. How did you get from memory to a Vietnam-era study of addiction? So the book follows an investigation into a really rare amnestic syndrome caused by fentanyl overdose. So um, in the course of doing the research for the book, opioid addiction or the opioid crisis um, was really the backdrop for the story and trying to understand that fentanyl was the ultimate cause and, and how many cases there were, I needed to understand um, addiction and, and opioid use in particular. So I really went into this research with a lot of assumptions that I think many people have um, about opioids in particular and um, was somewhat surprised by what I learned. What went through your mind the first time you ran across the Vietnam study? Addiction is such a complex phenomenon and it's different for everyone and everyone lives in different circumstances. So sort of teasing that out is quite hard. But there was a very unusual circumstance um, as the Vietnam War was winding down. Um, as I, I said in the intro, Nixon was worried about drugs. Everyone was worried about drugs. And the Department of Defense was aware that there was a very high rate of addiction to heroin um, in the veterans. And they were being discharged and coming home. And what would that mean for them and for society? So, so what was the scope of the problem, really, was what they wanted to know. Um, so in September of 1971, um, close to 14,000 people were, were being discharged that month. And they had to undergo um, drug screening before they left. And if they were found to be positive, um, they had to undergo a detox of six to seven days before they could come home. 
Um, so there were large numbers of people who were addicted because despite knowing that um, they would have this adverse consequence of, of having to delay their trip home, they still came into detox using. Um, so the Department of Defense uh, decided to do this study and hired a sociologist named Lee Robbins, who had a long uh, track record of doing very rigorous studies. So she, um, she collected a sample of men who had become addicted and men from the general population of people coming home and um, interviewed them um, you know, when they left and when they, uh, about a year later, and then again, three years later. So let's back up just a second that, as I think you just described, men who, and this is all men, I believe. Yes. Men who, quote, failed the drug test, even though they knew they were going to be tested, that was a signal that these people were probably addicted. Whereas other people who were using heroin and opium and other things who knew they were going to be tested could probably cut it out so they wouldn't test positive and wouldn't be penalized by staying back in Vietnam for another week or 10 days. That was the presumption. And that was also backed up by interviews with the veterans themselves who described themselves as, as being addicted. Was at the time, so 1971, that's seven years into the United States's sort of full involvement in Vietnam. And as you said, the war effort was beginning to wind down. Was drug use common among soldiers? It was very common. So not just heroin, but also stimulants, marijuana, barbiturates. Um, and so, but, but heroin in particular was, was very available and, and cheap and potent. So um, about 85% of men reported being offered heroin. Wow. Yeah. You know, one of them even like as he was disembarking from the plane after having touched down in Vietnam was was literally offered heroin. Um, so it was there by, for, by other soldiers or by kind of people on the fringe or that I don't know. And that's not described, as I recall, in the papers. But regardless, it was it was available. And so about 50 percent of, of veterans actually used it um, and about 20 percent became addicted. Well, was the drug landscape back in the U.S. at the time? Do you have any clue? Heroin and opioids uh, opioids were less widely used. They're certainly much more common today. But one of the interesting things that uh, Robbins and her team found was that um, the people who remained addicted, even after going back to the United States, were people who already had some difficulties. Some of them had already been using drugs. Some of them had trouble with the law or trouble at school or family problems. So I've sort of jumped ahead to her key findings. So, so basically, after a year, 95% of the men who had been addicted when they left Vietnam had recovered. Only 5% uh, relapsed to re-addiction. And those tended to be the people who had had problems before they arrived in Vietnam. As you described it earlier, it was a natural experiment. It sounds almost like a natural controlled clinical trial. Yes. Yeah, so um, Robbins was really a pioneer because she did take a very scientific approach to this. You know, she knew that she needed sort of an unbiased sample. So these were men from all walks of life, um, from all over the country. She knew that she needed a control sample. And... Um, she needed high quality data, so she needed to know uh, what they were taking based on 
biological data, not just what, what the people said. And then she needed to follow them longitudinally. So it wasn't just a snapshot in time, but, but what happened to them? And, um, because her results were so surprising, um, she went back and her team went back and re-interviewed, um, the men another two years later. So more of them had relapsed. I think the number is, uh, 12% had relapsed to re-addiction, but that's still in contrast to what um, the Department of Defense knew going into it or, or believed going into it because they were looking at data, uh, from the 1960s of people who, um, were incarcerated for drug use, uh, and they were put in what's called these narcotic farms, um, one in Texas and one in Kentucky, and they were incarcerated for long, long periods and then discharged. And they had very, very high re-addiction rates. I think 90, 90% in the first six months, 70%. Sometime after that. So it was understandable that people were really worried and really assumed that if you try heroin, you know, once you're going to be addicted and you're not going to recover. Did you say narcotic farm? That's what they were called. Wow. I mean, what I were think those? not officially, but. No, no, no. Yeah. So it was like a prison for people who were addicted? I believe it was uh, an incarcerated population and a uh, people who were incarcerated who had addiction problems. Wow. I believe that's that, what it was. That must have been a challenge to administer. Um, yes, and a challenge to uh, be part of, to be one of those incarcerated people. Sure. I, I think kudos to uh, the Department of Defense for not having the study done by somebody within their ranks. And Lee Robbins, who died in 2009 was a pretty interesting woman. I read that during her career as a professor of social science and psychology at Washington University in St. Louis from 1954 to 2007, she helped establish the field of psychiatric epidemiology, which studies the causes of mental disorders in society, as well as how common mental illness is and why it occurs. Do you think she was a particularly interesting choice for leading this study? I think she was the right choice. Um, and it wasn't the Department of Defense directly that hired her. They they set up a special office to, to look at this problem. And um, the uh, person who led that office, Dr. Jerome Jaffe, is, is the one who chose her. I don't know that they went into it sort of wanting an answer one way or the other. They just wanted to know the scope of the problem. And so then how, how could they address it? So you wrote that they had a kind of a, a ho-hum finding, meaning that when drugs are available, people will use them, which wasn't that revealing. But the rest of it went against or uh, went against contemporary thinking about addiction. How was all that received? According to Robbins and others who worked with her, it wasn't received very well. Um, there was, she described it as um, journalists saying it was a Department of Defense uh, whitewash. Uh, she spent a lot of time with a New, York's, New York Times reporter trying to convince him otherwise. Um, and so, but that again is understandable because it runs so counter to, to what we think and, and to the data that they had at the time. So um, yes, those, um, those uh, remission rates, those recovery rates, were really surprising, as as was the fact that most of them recovered on their own. You know, they didn't go to treatment programs, which is not to say that, I mean, treatment programs are are super important and, and we need better treatment programs because for the people who do become addicted, 
um, that's really important. But it's also important to to recognize that um, it is possible to recover on your own. One of the data points that you mentioned was that there wasn't a dose response, can, which I thought was fascinating. Can you describe that a little bit? Right. So um, it would seem sort of intuitively obvious that using um, drugs would be a response to sort of the intolerable circumstances of war. And almost certainly um, the circumstances must have played some sort of role. But uh, Robbins herself um, did not believe that that was really the driver. Um, she found that um, people used heroin before they were on the front lines um, and that they didn't um, they weren't more likely to use it um, the longer they were there or um, the sort of more stressful circumstances that they were in. So if the if the study was done with soldiers returning in September 1971, when did the findings begin to trickle out from her work? Um, so her first paper was published in 1974. Um, she did a follow-up in 1977, and then um, she gave a lecture in 1993. By the fall of Saigon in 1975, U.S. troops were pretty officially out of Vietnam. So the findings couldn't have had much effect on current drug use among soldiers. Do you know if the Department of Defense or the Veterans Administration ever used her the findings from this study in how they approached soldiers with addiction problems? That's a really good question, um, and I don't know the answer. That would be that. I'm going to have to go looking for that. Yeah. <laughs> so Robbins wrote that she and her team quote found little to justify the view of heroin as an especially dangerous drug, and you wrote quote. Instead, some people appear to be more vulnerable to drug abuse in general. Teresa Gaffney, who produces the First Opinion podcast, said that that sounds eerily similar to the arguments used by the Sackler family, who own and run Purdue Pharma, to negate responsibility they may have had in creating today's opioid crisis. Richard Sackler once wrote in an email, quote, We have to hammer on abusers in every way possible. They are the culprits and the problem. They are reckless criminals. Yikes. How is what Lee Robbins found different or more nuanced than that? So, um, you know, 5% of people becoming addicted out of thousands is still a lot of people to be concerned about. Sorry, 20% of people to become addicted and then 5% to, to remain addicted. That's still a lot of people to worry about. And, and to put it in today's terms, when you have tens of millions of people being prescribed opioids, that number is, is, is coming down. Um, that's still a lot of people. Um, one of the more recent studies I read um, said that about 3% of people who um, use prescribed opioids will become addicted. So that's thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But more to the point, you know, we don't blame people for, um, or we shouldn't blame people for their addiction. They, they do have some vulnerability. This is a public health problem. You know, as I think about the study, has something like that ever been replicated? Not to my knowledge, and um, not according to um, one of the experts I spoke with who, who worked on the study. I'm not sure how you could do that, but there is room for much better data than we have today. 
um, you know, the recent numbers um, that were released by the CDC are really appalling. Um, but they're not nearly as accurate as the precision of those numbers would suggest. You know, I think it's 93,300 something overdose deaths and um, 69,000 something um, associated with opioids. Um, but to think about where that data comes from, it comes from medical examiners who, who usually know what they're, what they're doing, but it also comes from coroners who may have no medical training and who may not have access to the right drug panels. So they don't know what the person is, is taking. They only know some of what they're taking. Um, and they may just assume that, well, if, if, uh, you know, opioid abuse is rampant in this, in this part of the country, that's probably what it was. Um, and, and it's also the case as it was in Vietnam that many of the people who are dying of overdose are taking multiple drugs. So something like 43,000 of those deaths um, were due to stimulants like methamphetamine and cocaine. Uh, but you don't see that usually in the headlines. So that seemed to me to be one of the take-home messages of your essay, that opioids are bad. They're very bad. But there are other drugs we aren't really looking at that are also contributing to overdose deaths. Did I get that right? You got that right. Um, the increasing supply of fentanyl is obviously a huge problem. But if we were to um, wipe out opioid use today, we'd still be left with a huge problem. And often people who um, no longer have access to opioids will come in, and according to the experts I've spoken with, and say, if you took my opioids away, I would use something else. Um, so we really have an addiction crisis, not just an opioid crisis. And I think to, to not really fully accept that and look at the whole picture um, is a missed opportunity to address this huge public health problem. If it's okay with you, I'd like to circle back to the memory thief for a minute. It's ostensibly about a group of people who overdosed on opioids and then developed devastating amnesia. Can you describe that? Yes. So again, it's very, very rare, although we don't know how rare. Um, opioids and especially fentanyl often lead to fatal overdose because they suppress the drive to breathe. But in these people, for, um, for complicated reasons, it appears to, fentanyl appears to zero in on just the hippocampus. So it's unusual to have- And such, the, the hippocampus is- Sorry, I am so used to talking about the hippocampus. That's, that's it, right. it is the memory center of the brain. It's where you form new memories for things that you can consciously remember like, um, you know, an episode from yesterday or the fact that uh, Nixon once declared a war on drugs. Um, so the kind of memories that that we care about and that sort of create our identities. So these people have this very, very sudden overnight damage to just this one part of the brain. And so they wake up and they um, can't remember anything new and will ask the same questions over and over. And some of them, um, there aren't a lot to sort of follow because many have disappeared, but um, some of them never seem to recover, including one person who I follow in my book. Oh, how awful. When did you first hear about this um, rare condition? So I actually uh, know the neurologist who um, saw, was among the few people who, who saw the first cases. Um, and then he saw another case, Jed Barish is his name, um, a few years later. 
And he and his colleagues at that point said, what's going on here? What's changed? And what had changed was that fentanyl was working its way into the drug supply. What was it about this story that made you think, by golly, I'm going to write a book about this? Well, um, partially because I had my own experience of sudden memory loss, um, which was really quite terrifying. Um, I just one morning couldn't remember anything. It sort of crept over me with a feeling of dread. And and I looked around and I didn't know where I was or kind of what century I was in. And I didn't know who I was. If you had said, hey, I'm Pat, who are you? I would say, I don't know. So that was absolutely terrifying, more terrifying than, than I would have sort of imagined. And it turned out to be a brain abnormality and a type of seizure um, and Barish was someone I turned to to say, what do I do here? Because the surgeon had said, you need surgery. And he looked at it and he said, this is really not a big deal. You just need to take medicine and you'll be fine. And, and he was right. But it really did leave me with a, a profound appreciation for how, how terrible it is to lose your memory and also how strange brains are. Like, why did mine suddenly act up, you know, at that age? Because the abnormality had probably been there since birth. Wow. So let's wrap up with kind of lessons learned or lessons, as as you said, lessons lost from the Vietnam study. What are some of the take-homes that can really be applied to what's going on in our country today? Polysubstance use is really important for, for the reasons I said, because um, if you take opioids away, you still have a huge problem. It's important that people understand that you can recover. Um from addiction, um, even though we, we really do need better access to treatment. But, I, you know, I think the biggest take home is we need better data. Um, so, again, we don't really know necessarily that well what drugs people are taking uh, when they overdose and die. But more importantly, what about people who show up in emergency departments? They don't have really detailed panels. Many hospital emergency departments don't test for fentanyl. So we also need to know, what about all those people who, who don't die? What are they taking? taking? And we need real-time information um, for law enforcement, for public awareness about what people are taking right now um, in various parts of the country. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, I hope the book does well. I look forward to reading your next opus. Oh, thank you so much. It was really great speaking with you. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It is produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and the executive producer is Rick Burke. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate you reviewing or rating the podcast on whichever platform you use to get it. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.